Well, anytime we get to celebrate someone's baptism, that's a good day. And anytime we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, it's a often moving and certainly meaningful experience. But to celebrate them both on the same day is something we don't get to do very often and is worth pausing to give thanks for. In one sense, baptism and the Lord's Supper are quite different. We baptize one person at a time, but we take the Lord's Supper all together. Baptism involves being immersed in water. The Lord's Supper involves eating bread and drinking the fruit of the vine. Baptism occurs whenever someone is ready to publicly profess their faith in Christ. The Lord's Supper is something we do on a regular basis. Here we try to do that once a month. So they're different in some significant ways, but in an even more significant sense, baptism and the Lord's Supper have their deepest meaning in common. Both are pictures of the gospel. Both are visible reminders of the death and resurrection of Jesus and how his death and resurrection intersects with our own lives. See, in baptism, we have a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and how that death and resurrection brings about death to someone's old life and resurrection to new life. It's a picture of Jesus' death and resurrection, but also of how his death and resurrection have transformed someone's life. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper gives us tangible reminders of what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. So the Lord's Supper has things we can touch and taste and smell. The bread that reminds us that Jesus is not just an idea, but he is a person who took on flesh and blood, who became a man for us. And the cup that we drink reminds us that Jesus died, that his blood was shed so that we could experience and receive the forgiveness of our sins. So these two things together, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they remind us of the heart of the Christian faith, of the gospel itself. And those truths, those events, are not things that we have simply chosen amongst ourselves to emphasize above some of the other things that God tells us in Scripture. The Scripture itself tells us that these are the most important things. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells the church in Corinth, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died For our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures. Those are truths of first importance, Paul says. And we see that same set of truths emphasized over and over in the sermons recorded throughout the book of Acts, not least of which uh, would be Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, 
on the day of Pentecost, and that's going to be our focus this morning. So I invite you to turn in your Bible, if you haven't already, to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 22 to 32. It's a short section of Peter's sermon. And let me read these verses for us so we can hear them all together before we walk through them and consider what what they mean and what they mean for our lives. So Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Now let's consider what Peter is saying here and the significance of what he is saying. First of all, he begins by telling them that they know some things about Jesus. Now there's a large crowd of people in Jerusalem at this time. They're there for the Feast of Pentecost. It was one of the three feasts that um, Jewish men were supposed to uh, come to Jerusalem for to observe each year. So there are a lot of people there. And Peter says to them, look, there are some things you already know about Jesus. Jesus had a very public ministry and he did some very dramatic things. He cast out demons. He multiplied bread and fish. He even raised some people from the dead. Jesus drew a lot of attention, right? He was not trying to produce big crowds, but people flocked to him. They wanted to hear his teaching. They wanted to witness his miracles. And Peter says, look, you know about these things. You know that God was at work through Jesus. He was doing the kinds of things that only someone sent by God can do. And so God was working through him in your midst, and you know all that. You've heard about that. If you didn't witness it, you've heard people talk about it. You know this about Jesus. And they likely knew about Jesus' death as well. Even if not all these people had been there about two months earlier when Jesus was crucified, they probably had heard of that as well if they had not been there. But he says something about Jesus' death that they didn't know. 
or at least likely did not believe. Peter says this Jesus, the same Jesus who who did all these miracles, who did all these signs, who God was working through, this same Jesus, he says, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Meaning Jesus' death was God's plan. It did not take God by surprise. It did not ruin God's plan. It's not as though God had a different plan and then people killed Jesus and now God's plan was ruined. It was God's plan for Jesus to die. He knew that was going to happen. It was his plan for that to happen. That was the very reason why God had sent Jesus. And yet, he says at the same time, this Jesus, right, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yes, Jesus' death was God's plan. But all of you who had a hand in it, you're still responsible. With what we can only call prophetic clarity, right? Peter says to the crowd, you have blood on your hands. Jesus' blood. You are guilty of his murder, of his crucifixion, of his execution. And when Peter says those two things, he holds two things in in tension, right, that are hard for us to get our minds around. Without a doubt, putting Jesus to death, betraying him, handing him over to be crucified, calling out for his blood, right? The crowd screamed, crucify him, crucify him. All of that was undoubtedly wicked. It was evil. It was one of the darkest things, if not the darkest thing that any human being has ever been a part of. To call out for the death of the Son of God. It was wicked. And yet, Peter says at the same time, that that evil deed was exactly what God planned to take place. How do we wrap our minds around that? In one sense, we can't fully. And that should not surprise us. God is infinite. We are finite. We cannot fully understand how God works in the world. We can't understand all that he does, why he does it, or how he does it. But it is clear from this passage as well as many others that the Bible tells us that even when wicked, evil things are taking place in the world, that does not mean that the world is out of God's control. It doesn't. God is always in control. He is sovereign. He's the king. He reigns. He rules. And for reasons we don't always understand, he does allow wicked things to happen. But he will also hold accountable those who do those wicked things. When Peter tells them, here was a man God was working through, And you killed him. 
He is already beginning to work on their hearts and let them know that they are in deep need of repentance and forgiveness. That they are sinners who have betrayed the Messiah. They have betrayed God Himself. And by the time Peter gets to the end of his sermon, they're going to be crying out, asking, what, what can we do? What, what can be done for us? But for now, he's just telling them, look, you guys put Jesus to death, but that was God's plan. But that wasn't the whole plan. Because the next thing Peter says in verse 24 is that God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why was it not possible for Jesus to stay dead? Jesus was crucified, Jesus was killed, Jesus was buried, but then Peter says, God raised him up. You killed him, but God raised him. God raised him because it wasn't possible for him to be held by death. Why not? Well, one reason is because he's God. He's God in the flesh. God can't stay dead. God cannot be held by death. Here's another reason. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. Did Jesus have any sin? No. So he didn't deserve to die. So death can't hold him. Death has no reason to keep him because he didn't deserve death in the first place. And here's the third reason why it wasn't possible for him to stay dead. The sin he did die for, yours and mine, the sin he bore on his shoulders as he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for in full. So there's no reason for him to stay dead. So for all those reasons and probably more, death could not hold Jesus. It was not possible for Jesus to Uh, be required to stay dead. Instead, God raised him from the dead. He had no sin. He paid for ours in full. He was God in the flesh. And so up he rose on the third day, catching virtually everyone by surprise. Even though, as Peter's about to show us, the Old Testament prophesied the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus told his disciples he would rise from the dead. And yet still, when they found the tomb empty on the third day, they didn't know what to think. They were surprised. They weren't expecting it. But Peter knows now they should have been expecting it. And he draws our attention to Psalm 16, which he tells us is a prophecy from David about the resurrection of the Messiah, the resurrection of Jesus. And so he says in verse 25, David says concerning him. So David is speaking in Psalm 16, but David is not speaking about himself. And, And the part that Peter draws our particular attention to is in verse 27, where he says, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, right, to the grave or to the underworld. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter says in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Meaning that prophecy, that psalm, cannot be about David. 
What happened to David's body? Did it see corruption? Yes, it did. He says, there's David's tomb right over there. One of the wonderful, amazing things about a place like Israel that we just don't have uh, here is really, really, really old history. Right? When Peter was saying this, David had died a thousand years ago. Right? And you can still go and see some old tombs, old cemeteries in Israel today. What Peter is saying is, look, guys, we know where David's buried. And that tomb is still occupied. He never came out of it. We know what happened to him. So this line in his psalm cannot be about him. Because if it is, it's not true. Because he did see corruption. So who is it about? Well, God had promised David that he would have a son who would come from his line, who would sit on his throne forever. David knew the Messiah, the Savior, the King, was coming one day from his line. And so here's what Peter says in verse 30. Being therefore a prophet. We think about David as a king, but he was also a prophet. God spoke through him. Many of the Psalms were written by David and they are Scripture. They are prophecy. They are God's Word. So he says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Right? That's that promise he made to David. Knowing those things, verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So he says, when David, speaking of this Holy One, who God will not allow to see corruption, he's talking about the Messiah, he's talking about the Savior. And his body didn't see corruption because he was only in the tomb for a brief time. He was crucified on Friday, he walked out of the tomb on Sunday. No corruption. His tomb's no longer occupied, unlike David's. We say, well, how, do you, how does Peter know that that prophecy is about this particular person. How does he know that that's about that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the son of David that God was talking about? Well, he tells us in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses. Peter says, I'll tell you how I know that prophecy is about Jesus because I've seen his tomb and it's empty. And I've seen him alive, bodily. I could touch him. I watched him eat. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't a vision. It wasn't some kind of spirit thing. It was Jesus in the flesh, alive. And it's not just me. It's all these people standing here with me who have all seen Jesus risen from the dead. We're standing here to bear witness to you about that today. That's what Peter said. With him are the other 11 disciples, the other 11 apostles, and probably as well the rest of that group of 120 people that were gathered together in prayer in chapter 1 waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15 that at one point, Jesus appeared to more than 500 believers at one time. Many people witnessed Jesus' resurrection. And so Peter is standing there saying, the Jesus you know, 
The Jesus you heard about with all the miracles, all the things that God did through him. The Jesus you betrayed, you crucified, that you handed over to be put to death by lawless men. God raised from the dead, just like David said he would. And we're here to tell you he is alive and well risen from the dead. That's his message. Now, let me ask you a question that will help you think about how this how this applies to us. I mean, in one sense, these are, these are events that, that happened, right? Whether you believe them or not, whether we believe them or not. Jesus died and Jesus rose. But the scripture also says his death was for a particular purpose. He died for our sin. So if Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin, but he's no longer dead, what does that tell you? The penalty was paid in full. It's done. So if you're a believer in Jesus and you still have lingering doubts, questions, uncertainties, feelings of guilt that you're wondering like, yeah, but could God really forgive me? Could God really forgive that? Could that thing really totally be wiped out? Could God really say about me, I have removed your sins as far as the east is from the West? The answer to that question is the same answer to the question, did Jesus come out of the tomb? If he did, and he did, then the answer is yes. Yes, he can, and yes, he has. If you are trusting in him, all of your sins are forgiven. Your debt has been paid in full because Jesus himself paid it in full and then rose from the dead to say, it's done. It's over. It's conquered. So if we trust in Him, we turn to Him, right? then we have full and complete pardon. As, as Paul puts it in, in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, where Peter's going in this sermon is they're, they're going to recognize their need to repent. What he is telling them, and, and, I, and I don't want you to miss this, Right? Because we, you know, it may not be true of all of us, but many of us have times, at least in our lives, where we wonder, like, could God really forgive me? I mean, I know God loves people, but does God love me? I know God forgives people, but could God forgive me? Think about who Peter is speaking to. The very people that he is laying the death of Jesus at their feet. You. You killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. To those same people, he's going to say, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. You'll receive the forgiveness of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If Peter can offer that in the name of Jesus to those who were tangled up in Jesus' death, what could you possibly have done? that God would not be willing to forgive. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. The Bible is crystal clear. If you are willing to confess your sin, if you are willing to turn to Jesus and ask Him to save you, the Bible is clear that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the good news. 
That is the gospel. That is why Jesus came. That is what Jesus accomplished. That's what is pictured for us in baptism. And that's what we are reminded of as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, you have been so good to us. And this news is so good that we do sometimes find it hard to believe. Hard to believe that it can be true at all sometimes. Sometimes hard to believe that it can be true for us. But God, this morning I pray that all that unbelief, all that doubt, all that uncertainty would evaporate as we are reminded through words, through our witnessing of baptism, through our participating in the Lord's Supper, this is the truth, that this is real, that this is what you have done, and this is what you offer to any and all who will receive it. So we pray, God, that those who don't believe would come to believe. That those who believe but struggle with doubt would be encouraged and and strengthened and, and built up. That those who are not wrestling with any kind of doubt or uncertainty but are experiencing assurance and just encouragement through this word, that 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 assurance and encouragement and joy would overflow into ministry to others, that they would share the love and joy and confidence um, that you have given them, uh, that others might be encouraged and come to believe as well. We pray uh, all these things, God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Bonnie's going to lead us in uh, one more song.